Would you turn again, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. If you were asked to give an example of a happy event, what would you say? What's an example of a happy event? Christmas Day, I hope it's happy for most people. A birthday, that's quite a happy event. A wedding, now surely a wedding could get on the list of the top five happy events, I hope. A wedding's a happy event. And yet marriage can be such a battleground. And so many people, including in our society, have been wounded by divorce. What trouble has been associated with marriage and divorce? And that makes this chapter, which is about marriage and divorce, highly relevant. I don't suppose any of us are in any doubt about whether a chapter on marriage and divorce is relevant in our society. And in this chapter, specific questions about marriage and divorce are answered. Because the Corinthians had written to Paul asking, verse 1 tells us that, verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about. Chapters 1 to 6, by the way, were all about issues that had been reported to Paul that were going on in Corinth. He tells us that in chapter 1. He'd heard reports. Chapters 7 to 10 are all answers to questions that they'd written to him about. He tells us that. They'd written. And he's answering their specific questions. But as he answers their specific questions, Paul is being a good pastor. He's modelling something bigger to them. He doesn't just want to answer their specific questions. He wants to get at something bigger also. It's a bit like this. The Christian life is like driving down a country lane. Now try to picture a car going down a country lane. It's one of those little single lanes. So there's no traffic coming the other way. There's the car. What's on either side of the country lane? A ditch. There's a ditch on each side of the country lane. Now, on one side is a ditch called worldliness. Worldliness is being just like the society around you. You live for what the society values. Society says, well, just settle down and get taken up with having a comfortable life, settled down, married, nice house, good job, good income coming in, got your status, don't deny yourself anything you like, and you just settle down, being like society. In Corinth 2,000 years ago, worldliness also meant sexual immorality because it was a very immoral society. So that's one ditch on the side of the road, worldliness. Now, some people in the church in Corinth, they had seen that ditch, worldliness, and they'd seen the immorality in their society. So what did they do? They swung the wheel hard to avoid it. And what happens if you swing the wheel too hard to avoid that ditch? They ended up in the other ditch. And the other ditch is called asceticism. Now, that's a less common word, isn't it? Asceticism. What is that? It's a belief there's something guilty about enjoying yourself. Oh, we shouldn't be enjoying ourselves. There's something guilty about that. A belief that the best sort of Christian is above anything physical. Yeah, you've got to eat food to survive, but you just do the best. You're above anything physical as far as you can help it. We're the spiritual people. And in the Corinthian church, this asceticism, there's something guilty about pleasure and there's something unspiritual about the physical, was resulting in people who were married acting as if they weren't married. 
Because marriage, what's that? Ah, that's, that's unspiritual. It's maybe even a bit guilty and suspect. And so they were acting as if they weren't married. And, it, and specifically, they were stopping having sex. The Bible's honest about these sorts of things. Because they thought it's unspiritual and it's a distraction from serving God. So we'll stop doing it. Now, when Paul answers their questions, he doesn't just want to answer their questions. He wants to get them avoiding both ditches. He doesn't want them just to get out of that asceticism ditch they were in, but swing the wheel too hard and end up back in the worldliness ditch. Nor does he want them in, out of the worldliness ditch and swinging into the asceticism ditch. He wants them to drive down the middle of the road. And the middle of the road is, I think there's a good summary of it in verse 31. Verse 31. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world and its present form is passing away. This is God's world. And he created the physical world. And he gave us all things richly to enjoy. That's an amazing verse in 1 Timothy 6. He gave us all things richly to enjoy. Not just to survive and get by and be able to spend more time praying, but to enjoy. Including marriage. Including sex. The physical things of life are gifts from God, not unspiritual. It's God's world. But, verse 31, what else does it say about this world? It's not just God's world. It's a passing world. So don't get engrossed in it. In other words, don't get taken up with it. Don't be in that worldliness ditch where you live as if it's everything. Marriage is not permanent. And being unmarried is not permanent. This world is passing away. So keep on the verse 31 middle of the road. Don't go into the ditch on either side. That's Paul's agenda behind, at least one of, part of his agenda, I wouldn't say it's the whole thing, behind the specific questions and answers he's dealing with. I wanted to give you that bigger principle before we get into some specifics. Now, we're going to get into the specifics, and my plan is it's almost a repeat of last week. If you are here last week, you might remember we ran out of time. And we're going to go over the same ground, but focus on the bits we didn't get to. But we're covering basically the same ground with the same structure, but putting the focus on the bits we had to skim over. So it's like this. Some specific situations. That's verses 1 to 16. And then a general principle behind them. That's verses 17 to 24. The specific situations are about marriage, but the general principle is bigger than marriage. That's why it looks like it changes subject at verse 17. But it doesn't. It's a bigger principle. So it's relevant to you whether you are married or not. So, first of all, some specific situations, verses 1 to 16. The first one, to the married, stay living as married. Verses 1 to 6. To the married, stay living as married. These verses told people who thought there's something second rate about marriage. We ought to be more spiritual than living like married people. It says to them and us, nurture your marriage. Don't neglect your marriage. There's nothing unspiritual about marriage. But not everyone is married. So verses 7 to 9 say to the unmarried, staying unmarried is good. 
There's nothing second rate about being unmarried. Paul says, I'm unmarried and I highly recommend it. He says he thinks it's great being unmarried. And if you remember right, if you remember last week, I said, let's drop this word single because it acts as if the only relationship that matters is being married. But no one is single because everyone there. There's a whole web of relationships that we are in. The unmarried are not single. But God's word also says, verse nine and elsewhere, if you want to marry, that's fine. There's Christian freedom on this. There is such a thing as Christian freedom. And some things where you're just free to make your choice, including whether you're married or not. Now, that is all just reminding you where we got to last time. And then we ran out of time and had to jump to verses 17 to 24. So let's move on now to verses 10 to 11. Verses 10 to 11. These can be summarized as if you're married, stay married. If you're married, stay married. Remember, the the Christians in Corinth were thinking it's more spiritual to act like unmarried people. Uh, And so they just were neglecting their marriages. And maybe even thinking of leaving their marriages. And so Paul takes words of Jesus that you can find in the Gospels. That's what he means in verse 10, where he says, not I, but the Lord. He's saying, actually, Jesus told us something specific about this. You can read it, for example, in Mark chapter 10. And it's this. Jesus is very definite. God is against divorce and marriage is for life. God is against divorce and marriage should be for life. And Paul applies those words of Jesus to the Corinthians who were in danger of walking out on their marriages. And he says to them, don't separate. Verse 10, he says, the wife must not separate from her husband. And verse 11, when he says the husband must not divorce his wife, he's saying the same thing. It's the same thing. By the way, I did comment last week This chapter is interesting in the way it treats husband and wife just the same, completely equally, radical for its society. Yes, I know Ephesians 5 teaches the husband is head in the marriage, but this chapter teaches that treats them quite symmetrically and equally on these matters. It probably uses the word divorce for the husband because in their society a husband could divorce and the wife had extreme difficulty divorcing. So it tells the wife, you must not separate. It tells the husband, you must not divorce. But it's the same thing said to each. Now, having said don't separate, he then says in verse 11, if you do separate, you mustn't marry someone else. What's going on here? Why has he said don't separate, then said if you do separate, you mustn't marry someone else? Now, some say he's now talking if a wife really has to separate from her husband. Maybe there's physical violence. Maybe there's extreme psychological abuse and he has and she has to get out. And and these people say Paul is saying, okay, in such a situation, leave, but then don't remarry. You see, these people think remarriage is wrong in every situation even if you are the innocent party. Now, I don't think that, but this is a difficult subject and it is a secondary matter where Christians are free to differ. 
So if you do believe that, we're not going to fall out over it, I hope. It's a secondary and a difficult matter. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Paul is just being a realist. Some of the Corinthians wouldn't obey Jesus in this matter. Some of them might walk out on a marriage without any good reason. And to them, he says, if you do that, don't you marry someone else? I think it's a little bit like in the Old Testament. Moses gave a certificate for divorce. And Jesus says it's not that divorce was acceptable in the Old Testament. It was like damage limitation. Because sinners were going to divorce, the law of God tried to limit the damage. And Paul here knows that some sinners are not going to obey and he's trying to limit the damage. I think that because I think later in the chapter, remarriage after divorce is allowed for the person who has been wronged. Now, Christians disagree on this. It's a secondary and a difficult issue where we are free to differ. But let's not lose sight of the main and definite message here. Marriage is good. Marriage should be lifelong and marriages die if they're neglected. Work at your marriage if you're married. Stick with it. Value it. Now, that includes if your spouse is unbelieving. So let's move on to verses 12 to 16, where Paul says, That includes even if your spouse is unbelieving. Now, these verses are not about whether you marry an unbeliever. The Bible is clear. Do not marry an unbeliever. For example, verse 39. Verse 39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. You see, there's Christian freedom. But he must belong to the Lord. And remember, I said 1 Corinthians 7 is very symmetrical. So don't do what someone did to me, which is said, ah, yes, uh, a woman must only marry a believer, but uh, a Christian man's allowed to marry an unbelieving woman. No, 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 no. The, The chapter's very symmetrical. Don't marry an unbeliever if you're a Christian. Christian, don't get a non Christian girlfriend or boyfriend. But the Corinthians were in a different situation from that. Maybe we'll come on to that teaching when we get to verse 39. But that's not what's going on in verses 12 to 16. You see, the Apostle Paul had turned up in Corinth years before. And he'd come preaching the good news of Jesus. Some of the Corinthians had heard, this is such good news. And they put their trust in Jesus. And they'd stopped going to the idol temples where they worship these grotesque idols. And they'd stopped going to the drunken orgies that Corinth was, uh, was characterized by. But some of them had husbands or wives who didn't trust Jesus and who didn't stop doing those things. Now, if the Corinthian Christians had a low view of marriage, that it was a bit unspiritual and a bit dirty, well, what on earth are they going to think of being married to an unbeliever who worships idols and gets involved in all the dirty stuff in the town? Well, they'll think, this marriage pollutes me. This marriage means I can't please God. This marriage makes me unholy. I must get out of this marriage. And God's word simply says in verses 12 to 16, don't. No, don't get out of the marriage. 
You may be married to an unbeliever, but it's still marriage. And marriage is a good gift from God. So stick with the marriage. In fact, these verses say, rather than the unbeliever making the believer unclean, it's the other way round. Verse 14 says the unbeliever is sanctified by the believer. Do you see verse 14? The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and vice versa. Very symmetrical chapter. Now, sanctified here clearly does not mean in the saving sense. It doesn't mean just being married to a Christian saves you. We get that, of course, from the gospel. But you can also get it from verse 16. Because verse 16 says, now you don't know if your husband or wife will get saved. So clearly sanctified is not in the saving sense. What does it mean here? Sanctified here means the believer should have a purifying effect on the unbeliever. Take a believing wife, her example, her prayers, her words, her attitude, her whole approach to life, all have the potential to to lead her unbelieving husband and any children that they have to lead them to, into living in a better way and maybe even to lead them to Jesus himself. That's sanctifying here. So, Paul says, stick with the marriage because there's potential even in this marriage for you, believer, to have a good effect and maybe even a saving effect on your husband or wife and your children. What if the unbeliever leaves, though? What if the unbeliever walks out? That's verse 15. Verse 15. And Paul says, if he's really going to do it, if the marriage isn't going to be rescued, then let him do so. Now, he's not saying be careless and don't work at trying to keep it together. But if he's really determined and you can't keep this marriage together, Paul says, verse 15, be at peace about it. Verse 16, whether he's saved or not is in God's hands, not yours. Do you see that? He's not saying be careless about keeping the marriage together. But if it really isn't going to, if he's going to walk out, be at peace about it. Whether he's saved or not is in God's hands, not yours. Now, do you see the attitude here behind this? The Apostle Paul expects them to care about the salvation of their family. He expects that to really concern them and trouble their hearts. And so he encourages them. Your example, your prayers, your life, your attitude can be used to bring your family to God. But if you lose that opportunity, if if your spouse walks out and you can't stop it, he doesn't want them to be torn up by that. He doesn't want them to be beating themselves up about that. He wants them to trust our opportunities to be a witness are in God's hands. I'll give you an example. I hope it's a valid example that's not about marriage. When my grandparents were clearly nearing the end of their lives, the biggest thing in my life, the biggest issue that concerned me was their salvation. Oh, that, that, that was at the top of my priorities. They'd heard the gospel, but it was not clear if they'd turned to Jesus. And they'd heard the gospel a bit vaguely and not very well. 
And so I would visit them at least once a week. And I determined with myself and I made a promise to myself and made myself stick with this. Every time I saw them, if there was an opportunity to point them to Jesus and if there was an opportunity to speak directly about are they ready to meet with God and how does that happen? I would take it. I made myself promise that I wouldn't be a chicken because I know I am a chicken on these things because it's hard, isn't it? With your relatives, particularly. But I also determined if that opportunity didn't come, I wouldn't force it and I wouldn't beat myself up about it. I could still go and visit them and just enjoy being with them. I trust the opportunities were in God's hands. Now, I don't know if I got that right. You can tell me afterwards if if I got that right or not. But I hope what I was doing was the balance we get here. Be eager to be a witness but also trust that your opportunities to be a witness are in God's hands. You can be at peace and spend relaxed time with them, not always stressing, but always looking and determining with yourself to use what God gives you. I think that's the balance here in these verses. Moving on, but still verse 15, but a slight change of subject, a brief word on a big subject. Jesus said in the Gospels that divorce is allowed if you're a victim of adultery. Paul says here in these verses that divorce is allowed if you've been a victim of desertion. That's what's going on here. Paul says divorce is allowed if you've been a victim of desertion, the the spouse walking out. Now, what do they both have in common? Jesus says when there's adultery. Paul says when there's desertion. What do they both have in common? They break the essence of marriage. What is the essence of marriage? What is the most repeated verse in the Bible on marriage? A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will be one flesh. That is the essence of marriage. Now, if you think about that essence of marriage, both adultery and desertion have broken that cleaving and that one flesh. Relationship, the two being one. So in a sense, divorce legally acknowledges what's already happened. The essence of marriage has been broken. It doesn't mean you have to divorce in such a situation, but it means it's allowable to divorce in such a situation. And I think in such a situation, the language of verse 15, where it says not bound, indicates the innocent person is free to remarry. It's a big subject. I'm not going to go into it now. I'll just give you a pointer of why I think that. Verse 15, the language is about not being bound. That language is repeated in verse 27. Our NIV Um, helps us understand it, but misses the language a bit. Verse 27 is literally, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek a divorce. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not look for a wife, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And you've got the same language in verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. She's bound, you see. But she can be loosed from that, freed from that. The language used would have been understood in Corinth to describe allowing remarriage after divorce. 
Now, I've just made a very big claim about a very big and difficult subject, and I haven't backed it up fully. I've just given you a little pointer, because we're not here for a lecture on remarriage and, and divorce and remarriage. But if you want to hear more about it, if you'd like more teaching about it, I do have a... Um, it's about two or three A4 sheets that explain this position and go through the Bible's teaching on this more fully. Ask me for it. That has brought us to verse 17. So we've had specific teaching on marriage and divorce, but there's a bigger principle behind this. So I want to end on the bigger principle that's in verses 17 to 24. This is the same as last Sunday evening. But we usually need to hear something more than once if we're really going to get it. And this is an important principle. So I'm going to say it again. And as the teacher, the aim of preaching is not to be original, it's to change people. I'm going to give you the same illustration as last week. So those who were here, sorry, same illustration as last week. When I used to drive around Zambia, the roads were nothing like the roads here. They were these orange dirt tracks where the rainy season had carved them into massive holes and ditches and bumps and mounds. And I'd be driving along and you'd go up and down and jolted side to side. And I'd look on the other side of the road. Oh, it's smoother over there. And over I'd go because, of course, there's no traffic. You can choose what side you drive on. And I'd drive on that side and you'd be jolted up and down. And look, oh, it was smoother where I was. And I'd go back over there. And Side to side we'd go and we comment to each other in the car, the road is always smoother on the other side. And that's the attitude behind these marriage problems that Paul is dealing with. You see, the married people in verses 1 to 6 are saying, I could serve the Lord better if I was unmarried. And the unmarried people in verse 8 are saying, life would be better if I was married. And the believer married to an unbeliever in verse 12 is saying, of course I can't please the Lord in this marriage, I need to get out of it. All of them are saying the road is smoother on the other side. And to all of them and to all of us, God's word says, contentedly serve God wherever he puts you. That's the lesson of verses 17 to 24. Contentedly serve God wherever he puts you. Now, we heard all of that last week, but I want us to hear it again because it's such an important principle. And I want to add some detail because God's word is not simplistic. And it doesn't pretend all circumstances are equal or are easy. So Paul seems to change subjects, but it is the same subject. But he gives a different example. Instead of marriage, slaves. Let's think about slaves. Many of the Christians in Corinth and in the Roman Empire were slaves. What was life like for a slave? Pretty grim. No freedom. What would you do each day if you were a slave? Exactly what your master said, with no choice. And you'd be regarded as almost a different sort of human below the other people around you. Almost subhuman compared with the people who were free. To those slaves, 1 Corinthians 7 says, don't spend your time thinking, I'd serve God if I had my freedom, but I can't as a slave. No, serve God in the circumstances he's given you. Even they were so hard. 
Still you can serve God. That's verse 21. Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Don't think I can't serve God as a slave. You can. And the Bible tells you how. But verse 21, do you see what it says next in verse 21? If you can get your freedom, do so. If you can get your freedom, do so. Because being a slave isn't good. It's not how the image of God should be. So get your freedom if you can, and then you can serve God in a different way. And you can be free to choose how you serve him in a different circumstance. But if you can't, being a slave doesn't stop you serving God, so don't spend your time moaning and daydreaming. Serve him where he's put you. Now, there are no slaves here tonight, as far as I'm aware. But I hope it's pretty easy to see how it applies to us. We don't have to pretend that difficulties are good and easy. If you can avoid them, do so. But if you can't, don't make them an excuse for not serving and spend your time daydreaming about if only I had different circumstances. Do you see, that's our equivalent of the slaves and the marriage lesson in 1 Corinthians 7. Let's, let's take an example I'll make up. I'm going to make up someone called James. He has teaching gifts. God has gifted him to be a good teacher and he would love to use them. But currently he's working in an Amazon warehouse packing boxes. Now, if he can get a job as a teacher and use those gifts and, and put into practice that passion he has, well and good, do it. But if he can't, he's not to think, oh, this is a dead end job. And I can't serve God here in an Amazon warehouse and spend his time daydreaming about if only he was a teacher. No, he can serve God packing boxes in the Amazon warehouse. Here's another example. Doris has arthritis in her hip and her mobility is really limited. And, And she can't get out to see many people. Now, Verse 21, her, the application to her is, if she can get a new hip, do it. The image of God is supposed to be mobile. But if she can't, don't think she's useless. She can serve God in how she reacts to her difficulty. And one of the reasons she can serve God in how she reacts to her difficulty, and so can James in his warehouse, and so can each of us in our circumstances, is because serving God doesn't mean doing spectacular things. It doesn't mean extraordinary activity. What does serving God mean? The answer's in verse 19. What does serving God mean according to verse 19? Your circumstances don't matter, Paul says. Whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, in other words, Jewish or Gentile, whether you're slave or free, that's not what counts. What counts? Verse 19, keeping God's commands. And I feel like saying, oh, Apostle Paul, you're so Old Testament. Haven't you read? There's a book, there's a letter called Romans. And it says we're not under law, we're under grace. Don't you think Paul should have read it? So Old Testament. He talks about keeping God's commands. Ah, well, whatever not under law but under grace means, it doesn't mean God's commands have gone. And that's good news. That is good news. Because we look at our circumstances and we say, I can't serve like those people. 
who can do so much more than me. We look at our past circumstances and we say, I can't do the things I used to. I'm so much more limited. Oh, I'm useless now. But God looks at us now in our circumstances and he says, will you obey me in your circumstances? Will you obey my commands? Don't be looking at their circumstances. Don't be looking at your past circumstances. God looks at you now in your circumstances. And he says, I don't expect you to do what your circumstances don't allow. I expect you to obey me now in your circumstances. Can you? Can you obey God now in your circumstances? Not without Jesus. Not without Jesus is the answer. Without him, you can do nothing. But, Christian brothers and sisters, you are not without Jesus in your circumstances. Verse 22 and 23 tell us that. Verse 22, if you were a slave when you were called, you're the Lord's freedman. And if you were a freeman when God called you to himself, you're Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Jesus has bought you. He's purchased you for himself with his blood. You belong to him. Whether you're married or unmarried, whether you're in a job that you love or a job you hate, whether you're unemployed or working or a student or whatever you're doing, whether you are able-bodied or disabled, you are not disabled from obeying God because you belong to Jesus Christ and you're a branch in him, the vine. Whether you're married or not, you're not single. Because you belong to Jesus. Whoever your boss is at work, Jesus is your boss because you belong to him. Yes, without Jesus, we can't obey God's commands. But Christian brothers and sisters, you are not without Jesus, however hard your circumstances. So you can obey him in this week's circumstances. So let's pray to God for help to do that. Father, we thank you that the Bible is realistic and not simplistic. And some of our circumstances are very difficult. And some of them, it would be better if we could change them in some way. And please help us to recognize when we can change them. And please help us to be content when we can't change them. And please help us to rely on the Lord Jesus and obey you, whatever those circumstances. And whether we like them or not, whether they seem conducive or not, Father, please, we pray that our aim would be to obey you and thus to display the Lord Jesus to whatever people you bring into our lives and however you shape our circumstances. Please, Father, help us also to understand this gift of marriage you've given in a society that's so confused about it and where there's so much divorce and so much strife. Father, we pray that our understanding of marriage, our attitude to marriage and the way we conduct ourselves, whether married or unmarried, would be in line with your word as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.